Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochilillo. And before we get started, I just want to thank my contributors to the show, Executive producer, Candice Anderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger. Senior editor, Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me. Binaural production engineer, Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. And monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, go to everythingimaginable2020.com. There's a whole bunch of information there on how you can contribute to this podcast to keep it going. And now, without further ado, we have Kathleen Martin, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, who wrote the book Captured with Stanton Friedman. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I am fantastic, and it's great to have you on. Thank uh, you. So I've, I'm probably about like on page 220 of the book now. I've tried to uh-huh. read it as quickly as I could. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've always been, obviously, I think most people that are into UFOs and aliens are familiar with the um, story of Betty and Barney Hill. But your book has a lot of details that I didn't know. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, but Thank first... You. Um, like, what was it like, like, like growing up as having Betty and Barney Hill as your aunt and uncle? <laughs> well, most of the time that I was growing up, Betty and Barney Hill as my aunt and uncle were just uh, my aunt and uncle, very interested in social and political affairs and, uh, just great members of the family. I enjoyed uh, visiting with them. They came down to visit about, oh, once or twice a week because I grew up across the street from my grandparents and my mother was Betty's sister and those were my mother and Betty's parents. So uh, that's what Betty and Barney were until I was 13 years old. And in August, Uh, of 1961, I had been to Niagara Falls with Betty's another sister, June, and my uncle Alex and my cousin. And we had such a wonderful time there. I'd taken photographs and I was showing them to Betty and Barney. And Barney said, have you ever been to Niagara Falls? And she said, no. And he said, do you think you'd like to go sometime? And she said that she would like to go. So he surprised her with a trip to Niagara Falls in September of 61. Uh, She had a week off from, from her job as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. And he took a few days off from his job at the post office. And uh, they had a wonderful time. Um, they went to oh Niagara Falls first and then up through Toronto and onto Montreal, spent the day there having a great time and decided that they 
would look for a motel on the outskirts of the city because they had their little dachshund, Delcy, with mm -hmm. them. Uh, but Barney became lost on the way and ended up on the road that would take him back to New Hampshire. And so they just continued on that route. And I, <laughs> the rest of it I'll tell you, but I uh, was home from school on September 20th 1961 when my mother was on the phone with Betty and uh, there were several calls that had taken place. I uh, was listening to my mother's side of what she was saying and then my mother would uh, when she would hang up the phone she told me what Betty had said. So it was uh, really a shocking day and it changed my life forever. Right. Uh, Betty and Barney never intended to go public with their story, but there was a violation of confidentiality, and that really changed my life. Yeah. So that's you know that's what it was like growing up with Betty and Barney. They were very politically and socially involved, uh, but by the time the story uh, was taken to the public. Uh, we had been to Lyndon Johnson's inauguration because they were very active in politics. And as a high school student, they encouraged me to campaign. And so I did, and I too received an invitation to the inauguration and went, had a wonderful time. Uh, and Barney had received by that time a, uh, a commendation from Sergeant Shriver for the good work that he had done through the Office of Economic Opportunity in the county they lived in, in New Hampshire, where they set up the Rockingham County Community Action Program. And he was the first chairman of the board of directors. He had also been appointed to the US Civil Rights Commission as a representative from the state of New Hampshire. So they were not interested in UFOs, or they called them flying saucers back then, um, but they were very interested in doing good things for their community and their country. Yeah, it, it seems like um, Barney definitely wanted to sort of keep it under wraps. Oh, yes, he did. When they arrived home uh, after they had their experience, uh, they arrived home at about 5.15 in the morning. I, I believe that was the time because the watch that Betty wore on that trip uh, had stopped running. And so she went into the house and rewound her watch. And so she set it at 5.15. That was the time. She rewound it, but the watch never ran again. So it always stayed at that 5.15 mark. And uh, Barney, to, to get back to your uh, comment about keeping it under wraps, um, boy, Barney just said to Betty, uh, no good can ever come from telling anybody about what we saw. And uh, Betty disagreed and she went over to the phone and she called my mother. So, and then Barney, uh, was extraordinarily distressed when the story was brought forward in the uh, Boston Traveler by reporter John Luttrell, one of Betty's 
friends who knew about what had happened to them, had knew about what they had said under hypnosis, went to this reporter. This woman lived in Massachusetts. The reporter lived in uh, the same town in Massachusetts. And, and she just told him. And it really had a terrible impact on Barney uh, because he was a man of great stature in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and in the county, and, and now even at a state level. And for this story about an alien abduction to be taken to the public, and, and this news went out across the wires, it went across the United States and into foreign countries, and it changed Barney's life. He was, was not uh, reappointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. He, wow. uh, things were not good for him as a result of this occurring. Wow. Um, so would you like to give my listeners like maybe a little overview of their trip back from Canada and how they recalled it? Well, first through uh, dreams and then through the hypnosis. Yes, sure. I'd love to. Um, they, very briefly, uh, they were driving through upstate New Hampshire when suddenly uh, Betty saw a new star in the sky and, and it, it did not move like a meteorite, it moved upward. And so she was watching it, it was a light, bright night, the moon was about three quarters full, uh, Barney's driving along at about 50 miles an hour, he said, and uh, this craft kept coming in closer and closer and closer. And Betty became interested in it because it was not traveling in a conventional pattern. It was zigzagging, it was uh, ascending vertically, descending vertically, and uh, it made her curious. So she asked Barney to pull over uh, at a rest stop. It was a little picnic area just north of Franconia Notch at twin, south of Twin Mountain. Uh, and they pulled over, they got out, they looked at this craft through binoculars. Um, Barney took his gun out of the trunk of the car because he was going to walk their dog. And if any bears came out of the woods, it was in an area with a lot of bears and there were picnic barrels. So he would shoot a, a shot into the air to scare off the bear. Um, so, uh, and, and Betty looked at it through binoculars. Uh, it was flashing multicolored lights, uh, traveled across the face of the moon. And Barney uh, was, uh, took a brief look at it. He knew that there was no such thing as flying saucers. He was a complete skeptic. And uh, he was telling Betty, it has to be a conventional aircraft. Get into the car and let's go uh, down the road. I'm anxious to arrive home. And so they, they got back into the car and this craft started pacing them, following along beside their vehicle up in the air and in a bit of a distance, but uh, it was still there. And when they entered, Franconia Notch, which is just a beautiful mountainous area in uh, New Hampshire. 
they, uh, this craft went up over Cannon Mountain and there was a building, this, it's a ski resort, there's a building at the top of the mountain and the lights in the building were on and Betty saw the lights blink out as the craft passed over the mountain, indicating that it could be a, a magnetic or electromagnetic field interfering with the lights. And so they decided they would just stop and take another look at this thing. They stopped at the old man of the mountain. This was their second stop. And the old man is 48 feet from forehead to chin. It's an old man's profile that was in the rock. So if you look up, it would look like an old man's profile. Unfortunately, it fell off the mountain in 2003, but it was there uh, <laughs> in 1961. The, uh, it was the, the, the highway, the, the large highway that went through and blasted uh, that probably caused the old man to fall off was built later, a few years later. So they were on the state highway at that uh, time. Uh, no, it was a U.S. highway, I believe, just smaller. And so they stop, they, they look up at this craft, they estimate that it's uh, about one and a half to two times the length of the old man's profile. So somewhere probably between oh, 60 and 70 feet in diameter. And uh, it appears to be rotating and they get back into the car and, and head south some more after they've looked at it. Barney was feeling uncomfortable. He he wanted to uh, find a police officer that he could report this to. And they drove, just drove uh, to the south entrance of Franconia Notch and came out on uh, Route 3, the same highway they were on. And uh, Betty was watching this craft as it was moving closer and closer still. And she said, Barney, you have to pull over. You have to take a look at this. It's coming in so close. And so he was looking for a place to pull over. There were motels and, and cabins and uh, tourist attractions along the sides of the road, but it was the off season. And so he, as he's looking for a place to pull over, the craft surges ahead and stops over the highway at about 200 feet from Betty and Barney. It's hovering in the air, silent. Barney stops the car so he doesn't have to drive directly under that craft. And he took the gun, he took the binoculars that were on the seat, put the gun in his pocket and stepped out of the car to take a look uh, through binoculars, and he could see that it was a disc-shaped craft at that point. It had a, a very brightly lighted row of windows, like blue-white light, very bright. Barney, uh, Betty stayed in the car, uh, looking at this point. It was so close, it, it really filled up the windshield of the car, um, but it's still up in the air. And so Barney stepped back away from the car for a better view. And when he did, the craft moved to an adjacent field. So he followed that craft into the field, 
still trying to identify it, bring, taking the binoculars down from his eyes, shaking his head, uh, putting them back up and it was still there. He was having uh, a bit of cognitive dissonance at that point. He just could not believe what his eyes were seeing. And this craft was now descending to within a hundred feet of Barney. As he's looking, he sees figures dressed in black shiny uniforms. And this is all part of his conscious continuous recall. This was not brought out for the first time through hypnosis. And uh, so he sees figures on, on the craft uh, and they're all looking down at him. And then suddenly all but one turn in unison to what appears to be some kind of a panel on the back of this hallway that seems to encircle this craft. He can now see them from the tops of their heads to their knees. He sees their arms go up. And when that happens, little lights, red lights on fin-like structures begin to slide out. And then something starts to drop down from the underside of that uh, craft. He's, it, it was like a rope, but it wasn't a rope. Now, today we know what that is. It's the, the carrier beam mm -hmm. that they use. They, they come down it and, and they take humans up through it. But uh, nobody knew that in 1961. So uh, he's looking and at the one at the window and he suddenly, for some reason, from the expression on its face, maybe, felt that there was a plan for him. And that plan was to catch him like, quote, a bug in a net. That's what he said, close quote. And so he is terrified at this point. He pulls the binoculars from his eyes so forcefully that he breaks the strap. He uh, dashes for the car that he'd had left running. It was a 1957 Chevy Bel Air. And uh, he threw everything onto the, the seat of the car and went uh, down the highway, speeding down the highway. Uh, because when he was entering the car, he saw this craft coming back in his direction. He said to Betty, roll down the window and look up. I think they're above us. And so she did. She was expecting to see the lights from the craft, but she didn't. All she saw was blackness. And she rolled the window back up and she said, I don't see them. I don't see the lights. And then within a few moments, uh, Betty and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds that were striking the trunk of their vehicle. It caused their car to vibrate and a tingling sensation passed through their bodies. The next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the highway with spotty memories of what had occurred in the interim. They remembered finding themselves on a dirt road with tall trees all around. They remembered a roadblock. They didn't know where or when it occurred. And they remembered a very large fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the ground. They then heard a second series of buzzing sounds. And um, Betty looked up and she didn't see the craft at this time. 
And she said to Barney, now do you believe in flying saucers? And he said, oh, Betty, don't be ridiculous. That wasn't a flying saucer. He, he always disagreed with her. He knew it was. But he, he liked to do that to Betty. Just, I don't know, to show her who They, they sound like such a cute couple. <laughs> they were. They were. And so uh, he said, I can prove that I can make those sounds, those buzzing sounds that we heard on the car. And so he stopped the car. He drove it from one side of the road to another. He did everything he could to uh, make that sound, to, to duplicate that. And he was not able to. So I'm sure that Betty was very satisfied at that point. <laughs> and they just drove on. He still continued to, to look for a highway patrolman to report it to, uh, but he couldn't find anyone. They were looking for, they wanted a cup of coffee, but everything was closed. And so they just drove on home, anticipating that they would arrive at sometime between two and three in the morning. Um, and that uh, accounts for the stops they made to those three stops. So uh, they arrived home, got out of the car, Barney went into the house and Betty walked the dog. Um, they checked their watches. And as I said, Betty's had stopped running, Barney's head as well. They, so they both, set their watches, rewound them, and they never ran again. So uh, Betty's told Barney, uh, don't bring the luggage into the house. If you take it out of the trunk, just put it on the back steps. I don't want it in here. It might be contaminated. And uh, Barney had noticed as he was taking his shoes off that there were deep scrapes in the toes of his shoes that hadn't been there. The, the previous day, and he was a meticulous dresser. And uh, so that was perplexing. They felt dirty. They felt very, what the, the word they used is clammy, mm -hmm. much dirtier than one would feel from just traveling from Montreal to uh, the seacoast of New Hampshire by car. And uh, so they took long showers they uh, sat down and they drew sketches of what they saw. And then they went to bed for a few hours. And then we pick up where uh, Betty called my mother after Barney said, don't don't tell anyone about this. Uh, <laughs> no good can come of it. Betty walked to the phone, picked it up and called my mother. So uh, she told my mother about this and uh, she wanted my mother to speak with a neighbor of ours who was a physicist when he arrived home from work in the afternoon uh, to find out what they should do uh, to, to know if they had radiation poisoning, for example. And so my mother called the physicist and for some reason he said, uh, if you have a compass, take it out to your car and see how the needle reacts. Well, we know the needle is going to spin uh, around the battery of the car, but this was the trunk of the car. And she took the compass out and she noticed new spots on the car that hadn't been there the day before, but they were in the location where she and Barney heard those code-like buzzing sounds two times. So, uh, 
she placed the compass over those spots and the needle whirled. And that didn't happen on other parts of the car, only on that part, meaning that there was a magnetic field around the trunk of the vehicle. So uh, Barney came out, he was still trying to make excuses. Um, he, he told Betty, oh, it's only a cheap compass. But when he took it and he tried it, it whirled as well. So that was a little distressing for him. Uh, the neighbors saw it. My family and I saw it within uh, a couple of days from that date when we drove to Portsmouth and saw some of the evidence and heard the story. I heard the story firsthand. Um, and so that was exciting. Also, uh, that night... Uh, when my mother had called the uh, the the physicist, um, my father's best friend, who was the uh, former chief of police in Newton, New Hampshire, the next town over from where I grew up, uh, stopped for coffee after work every night. And so he said that the Pease Air Force Base uh, in Newington, next to the town that Betty and Barney lived in, had notified the police stations that if they received any UFO reports, that uh, they should tell the witnesses to make a Project Blue Book report uh, to Pease Air Force Base. So being good citizens, that's what Betty and Barney did. They, they called and they filed that report. And by the time we arrived, uh, a day after they filed the report, Barney was sitting quietly in his chair in, in the corner of the living room, uh, just waiting for a call to come in because Pease Air Force Base said that they would be calling him back, maybe with further questions. They uh, had called back once and said that uh, the, there had been uh, a radar sighting uh, at 2.14 a.m on the night that they saw that craft. And uh, so that was very interesting too. And you know, Barney just wanted to discuss this with the Air Force. So he was not his usual jovial self with the children of the family. He was uh, very outgoing and gregarious and he was sitting kind of pensively. And my father sat with him while my mother myself and my, my two brothers uh, spoke with Betty. And my father later told me when I was doing my investigation years later, that Barney was very clear about what he saw. He uh, was very clear about seeing the, the figures dressed in black shiny uniforms on the craft. And my father told me that he was the one who suggested that Barney might want to undergo hypnosis because whatever he saw in their faces, which he said were somehow not human, it frightened him so badly that he had uh, developed a mental block for what their faces looked like. So uh, that was the beginning of Betty and Barney's effort to find a hypnotist who would work with Barney and uh, they 
it took a long time before <laughs> they actually did find one. They, they had a friend who was an officer at Pease Air Force Base, Ben Sweat, and uh, he was a hypnotist, but he wasn't trained to work uh, through uh, regression hypnosis like Betty and Barney had. Uh, they went later to uh, a psychiatrist uh, at Balpate Hospital in northern Massachusetts. And uh, the psychiatrist there said, well, yes, he could do hypnosis with them, but he wanted them to give it some time. He thought the memory would return if they would wait. But then this bothered Barney so greatly that he developed post-traumatic stress disorder. That's what we call it today. Mm -hmm. They were calling it uh, anxiety, neurosis, anxiety, and he developed bleeding ulcers and he was hospitalized. This was life-threatening. And uh, he had to take a leave of absence from work. And uh, the doctors were identifying this, the cause of this as that UFO incident. Uh, in the White Mountains that had triggered all of this. So Barney was eventually referred to Dr. Benjamin Simon. He was a renowned psychiatrist uh, from who had a practice in Boston, Massachusetts, which was about 50 miles from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, Betty and Barney went to him. Dr. Simon, was really remarkable. He was a colonel in the army during World War II, and he set up the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital on Long Island. He uh, had developed a highly successful technique of working with returning veterans uh, from the front, uh, soldiers who uh, were injured uh, psychologically and that uh, something had happened. And let me give you an example. Uh, in the movie, Let There Be Light, that was made about Dr. Simon's work, uh, it showed him uh, with a soldier being brought in who was blind, yet there was no physiological reason for his blindness. And other psychiatrists had worked with him unsuccessfully. So Dr. Simon used deep trance hypnosis and he went to into the soldier's background, not just to that incident where uh, the soldier saw his best friend killed in front of him. That didn't uh, restore his vision. It, Dr. Simon probed deeper and found out that his sweetheart had uh, two weeks before that, sent a Dear John letter. She was breaking up with him. And he had read this letter. And so that it was a combination of things that caused this soldier's blindness. So uh, he finally did recover uh, as a result of this hypnosis where Dr. Simon said, you can see now, open your eyes, you can see. And at the end of the John Huston movie, you would see that soldier outside uh, playing baseball, running the bases, and then getting on a bus to go home to his family. So Dr. Simon did uh, incredible work 
during World War II. And that is why he was so highly esteemed in his field. And he was the perfect physician for Barney to go to because uh, Barney's uh, symptoms were psychogenically mm -hmm. induced uh, by that horrifying experience that he had had, by that fear and that mental block. So Dr. Simon started seeing Betty and Barney in January of 1964. They'd had their first consultation with him in December of 63. And uh, he conditioned them first to go into deep hypnosis. And he, he had uh, some, a few talk sessions with them. And then he did um, hypnosis with them individually while the other one was waiting in his office and there was bombastic music playing. So the, uh, the one in the, uh, the waiting room <laughs> couldn't hear the one in the office. And Dr. Simon uh, took Barney first and uh, he started Betty, both Betty and Barney with the beginning of the trip that they took. Uh, why they decided to go, um, the trip to Niagara Falls, the drive through, the entire route and what they were seeing along the route. And then uh, he took each of them separately uh, to the part that they had amnesia for. And Dr. Simon was very careful to ascertain that Betty and Barney did not share their memories with one another as Barney was hypnotized first, what ha would happen if he told Betty what he remembered, uh, it could contaminate her recall. And so uh, Dr. Simon reinstated amnesia at the end of each session. And when he was finished with all of these uh, hypnosis tapes, I believe I have 10 of them. Um, so uh, when he was finished, uh, he took them into his office again, and this is several months later, and let them listen to the hypnosis tapes a little bit at a time. And then uh, he did therapy with them to help them to uh, deal with any um, emotions they might have regarding what had happened to them to help them to integrate this knowledge into their minds. And he, uh, being a non-believer in uh, the possibility of extraterrestrial involvement, uh, he attempted to convince Betty and Barney that uh, Betty was repeating a series of dreams that she had uh, starting 10 days after their uh, experience with the UFO and that uh, she uh, had written those dreams down and her uh, supervisor had convinced her that maybe those dreams were real. And, you know, I, I have studied this and studied this and I finally found some information about the dreams that you have just before you wake up in the morning. At that point, you are in, uh, a, a light state of hypnosis, a, hypnog a hypnopompic state. And you 
uh, as you're working through your any anxiety or whatever you had the day before uh, in your dreams and you're beginning to wake up, you will combine material that you remember um, and also some fantasy material mm -hmm. as well. So uh, I ended up, and, and I, I'm sure you probably have read it in the book, my comparative analysis yeah. of Betty's and Barney's statements. I didn't make the book boring the way I would have if I had put the entire comparative analysis in the book. I just, uh, in the book, told about what Betty and Barney remembered, what uh, convinced me that this was a real experience and not Betty retelling her dreams and Barney somehow absorbing the dreams and believing they were real, even though he thought it was ridiculous. So uh, to go briefly to uh, what happened to Betty and Barney, when uh, they found themselves on that dirt road with the tall trees all around, uh, they were stopped by men standing in the road and they wondered what's going on you know is is there an accident ahead um is there why is this roadblock there and then those figures started to walk toward betty and barney their car um the engine of their car stalled out at that point and these entities uh, went to each door and barney said to betty uh, it's the ones I saw when I was standing in the field. She uh, opened her car door put her to uh, run into the woods to hide, but she was intercepted before she could get out of the car. Uh, Barney decided to go peacefully and quietly. Uh, he feared that he could be harmed if he fought back. And so uh, Barney was taken down path through the woods and he he told dr simon that he could feel the toes of his shoes bumping along the rocks and that's what caused mm -hmm. this the marks on the toes of barney's shoes betty was taken down the path in the woods and when they attempted to take her to the craft she fought for her life Remember, no one had ever been abducted as far as we knew. Right. And so they didn't know <laughs> if they were going to be released, if they were going to become specimens uh, taken to some foreign planet or what. But uh, they, they were reassuring Betty and Barney that they would not be harmed. They only needed to do a few simple tests and then they would be on their way. So, but Betty didn't believe them. So she fought and in doing so, she kicked one of them. And in, when she did that, trying to fight, uh, she tore the hem down on one side and tore the lining of the dress from waist to hemline. And they finally took control of her and took her into a different examining room on the craft than Barney was in. They underwent, uh, many different examinations. Uh, the entities were very interested in their uh, skeletal structure, their muscular structure, 
their nervous system, um, their teeth. Uh, they took many samples and then they put Betty on a table. Um, they tried to remove her dress first and they tore the zipper and they tore the stitching out as well. And uh, they fi she finally had to show them after they'd ruined her dress, what, how to do it. Uh, so by the time they reached Barney, they did know how, <laughs> but uh, so her dress fell in a pile onto the floor and they uh, produced a large needle. And Betty said, what are you going to do with that? And the examiner said, uh, only a simple test. Think of it as kind of like a pregnancy test. And this is telepathic communication. And so uh, she said, that's no pregnancy test where I am <laughs> on earth. But, uh, and this was about 10 years before they used amniocentesis in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. So this uh, preceded amniocentesis, but they plunged the needle into her navel, causing great pain. Dr. Simon had to end the session early for her because uh, she was weeping profusely. Tears were running down her cheeks. But before that, uh, before he ended the session, the leader, the one she called the leader, I always call them escorts today, but uh, he did something around Betty's head and all of the pain went away. So she trusted him. Uh, the other one, the examiner, then left the room and went into Barney. There was only one examiner on that craft, but the craft was set up to do these physical examinations on humans. So this wasn't a spur of the moment idea. This They had intended to do that. And in my investigations, and also in my research uh, of our government, I do know that uh, there were uh, abductions earlier uh, mm -hmm. than Betty's and Barney's. I found uh, a generational uh, contact event, abduction, uh, that went back to uh, the 19, oh, uh, must have been the 1930s um, with De Denise Stoner's mother. Uh, Denise Stoner is my co-author on the book, um, The Alien Abduction Files. So uh, it does go back in time. And, and this uh, extraction of uh, ova from the navel, semen from the man, uh, had been taking place before Bet it happened to Betty and Barney. Uh, they had this uh, apparent uh, DNA collection program going on in the 50s, but no uh, organization, UFO organization, had any interest in investigating uh, abductions at that point. Uh, they were dubious about close encounters. They were comfortable with lights in the sky. So um, Betty and Barney went, underwent these examinations when Barney was in the examining room. Betty said to the examiner, well, I know you're not from around here, uh, where's your home port? 
and he produced a three-dimensional star map mm -hmm. with uh, many stars on it, 12, 12 that were connected by line and three additional ones and that were not connected by lines. Uh, the ones in the foreground were as large as a quarter and a nickel. And uh, so Dr. Simon told Betty that if she could remember this accurately, and it didn't bother her too much, that she should go home and draw it, which she did, uh, and took it back to him. So I have, uh, I had access to the original copies. I, I set up an, an archival collection at the University of New Hampshire, which is Betty's and my alma mater. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is at the Milne Archival uh, Library there, Special Collections Library. So uh, Betty and Barney were finally released uh, unharmed and went along the way. And you've heard the rest of uh, that story of, of what happened to them. Right. And then after that, like a lot of people got involved. This is the um the Air Force, NICAP, um Project Blue Book with Alan Hynek, and I guess maybe even the CIA was interested. Yes, you're right. Um first of all, uh, I had said they, they phoned the Air Force and made a report because my father's friend told them to. And then uh, they knew nothing about UFOs. They'd ne never read anything on the topic. So Betty went to the Portsmouth Public Library and took out the first book she'd ever read on the topic. And inside the book was uh, the name and address of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And there was a request that if you do have a UFO sighting, please make a report to NICAP. So she made the report to uh, Major Donald Kehoe, uh, who is now out of the service. NICAP was mostly comprised of um, former military people, uh, some present military people, some CIA people, uh, scientists, and, and some civilian investigators as well. And so Walter Webb, who was an astronomer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston, uh, was assigned the case, a close encounter with a UFO. And uh, he went to Betty's and Barney's house in early October, uh, just a couple of weeks after this happened, two or three weeks. And he interviewed Betty and Barney uh, separately and then together uh, for about six hours. And unfortunately, he forgot to, to test the spots on the trunk of the vehicle. He's not sure if he even saw them, but he knows he didn't test them. Um, so if uh, he did not have a tape recorder with him either, so he was taking notes, and then he wrote a report that appeared in NICAP, a confidential report. Mm -hmm. um, so many members of the Air Force were involved, and uh, Barney developed a new friend who was a retired 
Air Force officer and also in the CIA. And I'm a little suspicious about that because uh, I've been told that you never really retire from the CIA, <laughs> that you can uh, you go back and work on uh, as a consultant on special projects. So I'm wondering if Betty and Barney were a special project. Right. Um, over the years, they met many, many military people who uh, were very supportive of them. These military people knew that UFOs were real. Uh, one of them was Admiral Knowles from uh, Maine, just over the river from Portsmouth, Elliot, Maine. And uh, he had a, a real interest in this, and he was cooperating with Wilbert Smith from Canada. Uh, when Wilbert was mm -hmm. alive, I think he died in 1961. But um, Wilbert's widow and other members of the military were going down from Canada to meet with Admiral Knowles. And eventually, Betty and Barney were invited to Admiral Knowles' house, too. They feared that they would be ridiculed. But when they arrived, they discovered that everyone knew that UFOs were real. And <laughs> the Canadian military even had a piece of the craft. Right. That, uh, they, there was a psychic there. Um, and she was going to feel the piece of the craft and tell them what, uh, she, uh, what reading she had from that piece of metal. So a lot, you know, there was a lot of military interest here, and I've never put a lot of emphasis on that. But uh, as I have explored all of this at a much deeper level, mm -hmm. uh, I've, I found out that the Air Force and the, the uh, Navy, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the CIA, were interested in messages from extraterrestrials dating back to 1954. In fact, I've just uh, recently written an article about that, and I posted it on my website at Kathleen with a K dash Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. Look under my uh, essays and you will uh, find that one about communication uh, with extraterrestrials, what did the did the government really know anything? That's yes, they did. I'll tell you that right now. But it's it, fascinating. You know, one one thing that also caught me when I was reading about Knowles was his wife was doing automatic writing, wasn't she? It it wasn't his wife. It was her uh, Swan. Was, it was her a name? neighbor, a neighbor, Francis Swan. Yeah. And uh, so she was doing. Uh, what they called automatic writing, she said that that she was receiving these messages telepathically. And they uh, just suddenly started to come to her uh, one night. And um, then they kept coming and she wasn't able to sleep. She was getting up and she was trying to write down everything that she was receiving telepathically. And eventually, she took that thick packet of information to uh, to um, Admiral Knowles, and Admiral Knowles passed it on to Margaret Chase Smith, uh, who was the senator from Maine, and then it went to Dwight Eisenhower, um, who was president at that time, 
And it went on, CIA, Office of Naval Intelligence, Air Force, et cetera. So um, I was able to acquire quite a lot of information uh, from Admiral Knoll's granddaughter. Uh, I had written in the book that you have captured that uh, I was looking for more information. And she happened to read my book or heard me on a radio show or podcast. And uh, she, I was speaking at a, a conference in New Hampshire, just over the river from, from where she lived. And she brought me the packet of information with Francis Swan's writings and with correspondence between uh, Admiral Knowles, Herbert Knowles, and Wilbert Smith, oh, who was wow. the UFO guy from the Canadian government. So uh, it was a gold mine of information. Wow. Is there anything interesting in there? Uh, <laughs> um, it, yes, a lot. Very interesting. It, it told why they're here, essentially. Um, and uh, that they're concerned about <laughs> Earthlings' behavior. Uh, they... They came back when uh, we were detonating nuclear weapons. And uh, they said that when we detonate nuclear weapons, it impacts our uh, mag the magnetic field around our planet. It causes a collapse in the magnetic fault lines and uh, that they were attempting to repair those fault lines and they also said that when this happens, it reverberates out through the universe and affects everyone. And, you know, that means that we live in a multidimensional universe right. because uh, in, in our physical uh, solar system, thinking as a physical scientist would, it would we wouldn't worry about that happening on our planet, but as as people who live in other dimensions, uh, it can cause a breach in the brain, b r a n e, like the membrane, uh, the fabric between the dimensions, and when that happens, one dimension can leak into another and cause great damage. And so they were attempting to repair this. Uh, they were also concerned about, you know, not only our use of nuclear weapons, but also the way we treat our environment. Uh, and that message has been carried on uh, through multiple other people uh, over the past uh, 65 years right. or so. And you know, seventy years or so, I should say, <laughs> and and uh, it it has been repeated. I have had an interest in communication, why they're here, for about five years or so, and uh, so I've interviewed many many people. I've taken part in a communication uh, experience with a man uh, who communicates with. Uh, Council of Extraterrestrials. That's what he believes. He was an experiencer from the size he 
from the age of eight, grew up in the UK. His name is Kevin Briggs. You can look at him up if you want to. I met with a team of uh, scientists and a psychotherapist and uh, skeptics and uh, UFO investigators. We met uh, secretly for two entire years, once a month. And we had the opportunity to learn how to uh, communicate with these non-humans and also to uh, once a month meet for about three hours and ask questions. So uh, Kevin would uh, go into a deeply relaxed state and uh, meditative state. And then uh, this entity named Ort would uh, come in and use Kevin's voice box. So he explained it that Kevin sort of stepped back uh, and let Ort take over his vocal cords. And uh, we learned some fascinating information. Uh, but it was the same sort of information that mm -hmm. I heard from Frances Swan, <laughs> you know, back in, in what I read that she had written and what I read between uh, Admiral Knowles and Wilbert Smith in 1954. <laughs> hmm. So, you know, it's all very interesting, but they, they're pretty much giving us the same information. It's only becoming more and more urgent as time goes on. Oh, so, so, so they're definitely, they have good intentions. I know as far as the message goes, but what about their curiosity about the reproductive system with humans? Uh, well, they have been uh, taking DNA from humans back in the 50s, maybe before. And uh, I have been informed that they took scoop marks. You've probably heard of scoop marks, but mm -hmm. Hopkins talked a lot about that. Uh, I was told that they were testing the toxicity in the human body. Um, and, you know, it goes right along with their uh, message about uh, ruining our planet with, uh, through pollutants. And I grew up just downhill from a, uh, what became a super fun site. It was a barrel factory where they brought in all kinds of chemicals and uh, they dumped them into the river that ran into the lake that we used to swim in and into the water that we used to drink. And uh, it eventually became a super fun site and it's been cleaned up now. And then the nuclear base, Pease Air Force Base, was right next to where Betty and Barney lived. Maybe, maybe that was the reason they decided to take them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, and and there was also a, a nuclear submarine base right across the river from Betty and Barney in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I was born in Portsmouth, and um, so it, it makes sense that the ETs would have this kind of 
uh, interest in watching over these things and also testing humans to find out how high the levels of toxicity were in us. And it makes sense to me that they would be taking DNA, um, reproductive material, uh, to keep, to store in case uh, we destroyed our planet mm -hmm. and all the life on our planet. They could eventually use it to reseed this planet, you know, when it recovered, or they were probably, I know that they were producing hybrids. I've never seen one. Betty didn't, didn't see one, but uh, other experiencers have. And uh, so they were, uh, the reasons, uh, thoughts about why they were uh, producing hybrids and what I've heard from experiencers on that is that uh, it was to benefit both us and them. So it benefited them because uh, they had lost the ability to reproduce. Um, and so they could use our material uh, to help themselves to reproduce, mm -hmm. to sustain their own race. And uh, when I think about Betty and Barney, I wonder uh, if they were the survivors of this planet Earth uh, who have now come back in the future. I don't know. That's just speculation. So, uh, so, so you might think, you think they might be humans from the future that are coming back? Um, possibly. Betty, Betty always wondered that mm -hmm. because they look Asian. They have a very Asian appearance. The, the taller ones, the examiner and the leader, the one I call the escort. Right. But then there were the, the smaller ones who did mm -hmm. not look like the taller ones. The smaller ones had, they were completely hairless too, but their heads were larger in proportion to their bodies. They had spindly arms and legs and kind of barrel chests. They, they were the guards. They made sure that Betty didn't get off the crap with anything that belonged to them. And uh, they um, abduct people. They, they take them to craft and, and that sort of thing. They do the menial labor right. uh, on on the craft for these uh, taller ones with smaller heads. There's speculation that the smaller ones may in fact be robotic or bio-robotic. Mm -hmm. They tend to stand against the wall unless they're told to move by the taller ones. It's hmm. interesting. And yeah, I mean, it definitely fits into everything else that I've heard. How about the implants? Are the implants to also monitor like um, what the effects of the environment are doing to our bodies? Um, well, there are implants, and one of the reasons is to monitor the health of the human body. Um, and it's interesting to me that when Betty was being escorted back to the vehicle back on that night in 1961 uh, by the leader, she said to him, uh, do you think that you might be able to come back again? Because if you can come back, uh, I might be able to find people uh, that you can speak with who are more knowledgeable than I am. Um, and 
So he said to her, I don't know. That's not my decision to make. Maybe we can come back. And Betty said, well, how out of all of the people on this planet, would you be able to find me? And he said, we can always find those that we are looking for. Hmm. So um, Betty probably had an implant. <laughs> Even totally. though when I used to discuss that with her, she would deny it. She uh -huh. would say, oh, that's ridiculous. They just followed me home. They know where I live. <laughs> Afterward, <laughs> but I do know that people with implants might live in California, but be in France on vacation, and they still have contact with these mm -hmm. non-humans. So uh, they can um, find you anywhere. She did actually also try to make contact with them again, didn't she? Yes, she did try to make contact with them. This is after uh, she and Barney underwent hypnosis. Uh, and I think it was about 1965 that um, they found the, the abduction site. And Dr. Simon said to them, if they ever found the place where the abduction occurred, it would mean that their memories were accurate, that this did happen. So they finally found it. And so she wrote to Walter Webb. She also wrote to uh, Homan and Jackson. And uh, Robert Homan and C.D. Jackson uh, were scientists, engineers at, uh, the, at IBM. And they were very interested. They had met with Betty and Barney in November of 1961. And they told them that if they ever found out what happened, they'd like to hear about it. And so Betty contacted them and they devised an experiment that they wanted Betty and Barney to take part in. And that was for Betty to uh, read a script that they gave her. Um, and that she would send telepathic messages at the same time every night. And then the scientists would go out and look for a craft. They were attempting to call in a craft or have Betty do it for them. She also did that experiment and asked them to call in craft in her area of southern New Hampshire and specifically on my grandparents' farm. Well, there were many, many UFO sightings in that time frame in southeastern New Hampshire. The incident at Exeter uh, was one. Think of that. The mm -hmm. two police officers and Norman Muscarillo, who had just graduated from high school and was going into the service a week later, I believe it was. Um, John Fuller wrote the book Incident at Exeter about many, many sightings of people in that part of New Hampshire that they had that was going on in my neighborhood. We had many sightings and we had a craft that landed on my grandparents' farm uh, 200 feet from my childhood home. I grew up across the street from my grandparents. So um, the... Uh, some of these experiments were successful, uh, but as far as the scientific team was involved, they had a sighting, but the coordinates that they gave where they wanted that craft to appear uh, had something to do with 
uh, I'm not talking about longitude and latitude. Um, there was the word a moccasin, I believe it was. And so um, Betty was sending that message, uh, show yourself at moccasin and, uh, and this, wherever they were. And they did see the craft, mm -hmm. but then they did some research and they found out that a craft was seen at another uh, place that had the word moccasin in it. <laughs> So then they had to, to conclude that uh, it was inconclusive uh -huh. whether or not that uh, experiment with Betty worked. But she, certainly the ones that she was doing mm -hmm. in southern New Hampshire and on my grandparents' farm appeared to have worked. <laughs> so there's a picture of a craft in the book that Betty took. Where was that one taken? Uh, that was in... East Kingston, which was right next to Kingston, where, where Betty grew up, uh, there was uh, a railroad track that went through East Kingston. And there were many, many craft seen in East Kingston, New Hampshire. There was a hill there, a big hill where you could look out toward the ocean. The ocean was maybe eight or 10 miles away to the east. And also uh, there were farms, a lot of farmland in that area. And craft uh, was seen landing. The, there was craft in, uh, in two places that I'm aware of, one in a field, uh, one on a farmer's farm where the entire family looked out and saw it. There was also a craft that landed in Fremont, New Hampshire, which was uh, fairly close to Kingston, actually the town next to Kingston. And uh, so, you know, people were seeing craft. Hmm. So what happened to Betty and Barney Hill like later on in life after all this uh, excitement? Well, <laughs> they were extraordinarily distressed when the information was released to the public as the result of the violation of confidentiality. It was carried in the Boston Traveler for five days. And uh, the first night, uh, they escaped to the home of one of the officers at Pease Air Force Base and uh, stayed with him until bedtime uh, to keep the media away and so that their phone wouldn't be ringing off the hook. The next night, the same thing happened, but they went to my grandparents' house. Mm -hmm. And we met as a family and tried to decide what to do next. Uh, Betty and Barney were afraid that they would lose their jobs, but they didn't. In fact, the, the press uh, interviewed Betty's uh, supervisor and uh, maybe Barney's too, but I know Betty's. And he, he told uh, the press that he'd like to have a half dozen more just like Betty. Uh, she she was a terrific social worker, and she loved that job. So anyway, she and Barney went to my grandparents' house. We met as a family and decided that since the story had already been released and received so much publicity, they might as well speak of it. So for the first time, uh, they spoke at the Universalist Unitarian Church in Dover, New Hampshire, 
This was early November, 1965. The, the violation of confidentiality was just before Halloween. And uh, the church was full, the first floor, the, the basement level, and there were people waiting outside in a sleeting night uh, to hear what Betty and Barney had to say. And they talked about their close encounter. They didn't talk about the abduction. And they were introduced by the public information officer from Pease Air Force Base. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And wow. uh, John G. Fuller happened to be in that audience, along with Admiral Knowles mm -hmm. and his wife, Helen, and uh, several others. Ben Sweat, I believe, was there. The, uh, the other Air Force officer I mentioned, you could see his photograph and capture and read about him. And uh, after Betty and Barney spoke, uh, all of their friends came around them and uh, congratulated them. And people were extraordinarily interested in all of this. And then John Fuller, uh, who wrote the incident at Exeter, uh, approached them and asked them if he could write their story. And initially they said, uh, well, uh, no. <laughs> and, and then they, uh, he's, they said, why don't you write up a contract for us and we'll read it and, and we'll see what we think. So he wrote a contract up and they rejected it. And they said they wanted Dr. Simon involved and, uh, Eventually, over months of negotiating, uh, they did reach an agreement, and John Fuller uh, wrote a partially fictionalized uh, book, um, the, uh, the UFO, you know, the movie was the UFO incident. He mm. wrote The Interrupted Journey. Right. That was the book that he wrote. Mm. And uh, it became a bestseller, worldwide bestseller. He was... Uh, a uh, popular writer, he uh, journalist. He wrote for the Saturday Review. Uh, he, uh, I think, later wrote uh, other books about things like healing and psychic phenomena and things like that. Um, so uh, it was a, a very popular book, a New York Times bestseller. And then, as I said uh, later, it became a movie. And after after it was made public, uh, there in the newspaper were uh, some articles that were skeptical about what occurred. But most of the scientists who investigated the case believed that it was real, uh, as well as the military uh, officers that Betty and Barney knew. And so that was that was good support for Betty and Barney. Um, it was later, after Barney had died, uh, that uh, the movie was made, and it was a disaster for Betty. Uh, Barney died from a cerebral hemorrhage in 1969. The movie uh, was a made-for-television movie starring James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons. Uh, 1965. You can see it on YouTube, 
but it has never been uh, released for sale. So that movie um, brought out the uh, disinformants very mm -hmm. vocally. They had started to work against this way back in 1967 or so. Um, but when it was the story was going out to millions and millions of people, people like uh, debunker Philip Class. I don't call him a debunker. I call him a disinformant because he added bunk to what happened to Betty and Barney. Right. He took every section of that story and fictionalized it and inserted doubt and speculation. Um, and, and then he slandered Betty and Barney. And uh, there were others who were doing that as well. And uh, Philip Class went to visit Dr. Simon just before that movie was released and threatened him. And Dr. Simon was very unhappy uh, about that. He, he, told, he uh, told Betty about Philip Class's visit and uh, that he did not like him. Um, but you know, Philip Class went on and did his work. He, uh, Edward Condon, from the uh, director of the Condon Committee, uh, scientific study on UFOs, was good friends with Philip Class, became good friends, as did Robert Lowe, who uh, was the, uh, the person who actually ran the, the Condon project. But uh, they became such good friends with Philip Class that Ed Condon gave Philip a, a written recommendation uh, that he should uh, be the go-to guy for the mainstream media. And after that, he was. Uh, he was the spokesperson who came uh, to every interview and uh, entered false information, uh, doubt, speculation, and slander. So he did that for many years. This disinformation campaign um, leads me to um, the idea that the government is involved with the aliens and that there's even possibly been some treaty made with Eisenhower. Uh, do you think there's any credence to that? Well, I know that the government was interested in speaking with the ETs because they did that through Francis Swan and some of them learned how to do it too. Wilbert Smith learned mm -hmm. and uh, there was a, a commander, Commander <clears throat> Larson. You'll read in the article on my website at kathleen-marden.com. Uh, commander Larson learned to communicate with these uh, non-humans as well. And uh, so there definitely was interest in that. I'm not certain about Dwight Eisenhower. I have not made a decision. Stanton told me that he believed that it was real because Art Campbell was an incredibly good investigator and Art discovered that it was real. Mm -hmm. He had the uh, links, the I don't know if it was the paperwork or what he had. He ended up writing a book about it. I do know that. Um, so 
you know, perhaps the government officials wanted to speak with them, but they wanted to speak uh, with government officials all over the world uh, to try to enter into an agreement. Uh, they said that they would share their technology, but they will not favor one nation over another. That when a piece of technology went to one nation, it would go to other nations as well. Hmm. Interesting. That so, was uh, that's in the article that I wrote. Do do you have any opinion on the idea of uh, disclosure and what's going on now with some of the information that's coming out from the Pentagon? I uh, I do. I do. Uh, I'm happy that the um, Department of Defense or the the Navy has admitted that was in 2019 that uh, they the uh, technology that uh, was seen on radar and seen by the pilots uh, was not ours. Uh, that the Navy had taken that film and uh, that uh, many of these craft were uh, flying into uh, the areas where naval pilots and, and ships, like the two ships off the coast of California, the Princeton and, um, oh, my my brain. Uh, Nemitz. <laughs> what, what was I think there was Nemitz. The Nemitz, yep. yes, the Nimitz. The, the Princeton <clears throat> and the Nimitz had incursions into their airspace by these uh, craft on a regular basis. Many, many, many of them. They flew in squadrons, they said. They could uh, hover for hours at 80,000 feet. And in seconds, they could drop to 20,000 feet vertically. And then uh, they could uh, drop to 50 feet above the ocean churn and bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball while it seemed to be communicating with an extraordinarily large one, larger than an aircraft carrier, under the water. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was happy to see that uh, admitted. So that is soft disclosure. I seriously doubt that we're going to receive a lot more information about uh, abductions or contact because uh, they're not going to do anything to cause public hysteria. Hmm. I, you can take that all the way back to 1947 uh, with Kenneth Arnold, uh, the, the story of the uh, unconventional craft, crescent-shaped craft that he saw, uh, nine of them over the, uh, over Mount, or near Mount Olympus in Washington, in the Cascade Mountains, the end toward the end of July of 1947, he uh, he was a respected pilot, and uh, he was on a sales uh, trip. He was flying the plane uh, to meet with a fire fire department. He sold fire uh, equipment, and when he saw this craft, and so he reported it, and it was carried all across the country. There was a lot of excitement. But uh, about five days later, uh, Roger Ramey, who was the uh, 
uh, main officer, uh, brigadier general, <laughs> took me a minute to think of that, brigadier general at uh, of the 8th Air Force that was located at Wright, not Wright-Patterson, it was in Texas at uh, Fort Worth. Well, he and his uh, intelligence, main intelligence officer then called a press conference in 1947. The reason they did that was because of public hysteria. And they uh, reassured the public that this was not extraterrestrial craft. Um, they, the, the earth was not going to be destroyed. They shouldn't sell all of their possessions. And it was only weather phenomena. Then in 1952, it happened again. There was a craft over Washington, D.C. Yes. Um, in July of 1952. And Major General John A. Samford called the largest press conference since the end of World War II at the Pentagon. And he began his address to the reporters in the audience saying that these things have been seen in the sky dating back to biblical times, that uh, they return about once or reported about once every century, and then they go away. But in the 20th century, they came back and they stayed, they remained. And so he reassured everyone that the Air Force was just uh, studying this uh, carefully, that they weren't getting excited about it. Uh, they were just going to study it methodically. And uh, that was about it. And, and then other officers spoke about what it, those craft mm -hmm. could have been uh, to help the public to feel a little more comfortable. But um, back then, uh, General Sanford said, these things can only be described as phenomena. And so what do we have today? We've just changed the name from UFOs to uh, UAPs. Yeah. <laughs> Unidentified aerial phenomena. The, the thing that General Samford wished for way back in 1952, because <laughs> the word flying saucers was a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> worried about the words uh, <laughs> um, what do you think the reason is for the secrecy i think that it's a matter well if there are more than one there's more than one reason but one yeah. matter is um, as i said public hysteria another one mm -hmm. is that uh, if our uh, military wanted to stop uh, contact with humans they can't they're militarily, militarily incapable of doing so. So they just track them um, and they know where people are being taken. I was told by uh, a man in the military who had retired. And then um, also, uh, if we can get their technology, then we'll be ahead of the rest of the world. And we certainly would not want the rest of the world to know that we had this superior technology. Um, our main occupation uh, during the 20th century and into the 21st century has been warfare. And these <laughs> UFOs show up at, at battles uh, quite frequently, they're reported. 
And there have been many, many abductions of military men and women as well. So um, I don't know, maybe the, the military is offering them up instead of uh, civilians. Yeah. <laughs> but it, that's just wild speculation, almost a joke. Yeah. But uh, do, do, do you think, though, that they could be taking some humans um, to other planets for recolonization? In case we wipe this one out, that's what they would be doing with uh, any of the hybrids that they raised. Um, they they have said uh, through communicators that uh, they are um, seeding planets, they're terraforming and seeding some planets uh, with not just the humans, but with everything that they've collected from Earth. I mean, back in the 1950s, they were taking soil samples and they were collecting vegetables from mm. uh, farmers' gardens. They've been seen collecting all sorts of animals. So, yeah, they could, they're probably just reseeding other planets. Well, hopefully this planet sticks around for a while. I hope so. <laughs> I, and that's why I keep giving this message because. It is so important, and I hope that it's being heard far and wide. I hope so too. I, I, I'm, I've become very attached to Earth. I have too. We, we live <laughs> on a beautiful planet, and we should keep it that way. But mankind's attitude toward it is that it's for exploitation and use everything up until it's gone and litter and, and billow toxic fumes into the air, um, dump toxins into the water, uh, all uh, in order to make a lot of money for a few people. Right. And money is not even a real thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you can pay the rent with it. Right. But it's just a, <laughs> Buy your in, food. an unequal exchange of energy. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for, for coming on today. Wow, that went by so quickly. I My know. pleasure. Thank you for having me. And the book is Captured, uh, the 60th anniversary edition with updates and with a, a whole new chapter on the scientific uh, studies that have been done on the Hill's uh, evidence in the past 14 years since the first book was published. Yeah, it's an amazing book. For me, to, so for me to read 200 pages in a week is pretty good. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I'm really happy to hear that. Oh, I absolutely I love it. I love writing, and I try to write in a way that is very interesting and fascinating it, it is great the details are excellent um and i also just i learned so much from it you know like like over and over again like you just hear like oh yeah benny and barney hill are the most credible abduction case ever i believe so and, and that's yeah. and that's but that's all I, all I really knew you know i didn't know that all these other people that are replicable whatever that word is <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're involved with the, with the case. It's, it was yes. just amazing. It is. It definitely is. And you know, this book is being sold in Walmart, 
and target. Wow. So I think that it's being introduced to the mainstream. That is, you can't get more mainstream than Walmart. Right. So I'm thrilled about that, you know, because I believe that people have nothing to fear. I agree. Um, they're, this is generational. They started way back in the 30s. And they follow. They followed uh, family lines, and mm -hmm. they take good care of the people that they have contact with. Right. Yeah. A lot of the uh, experiencers that I have interviewed, you know, their parents, their grandparents. It, it seems to follow the family. It does. And when you become ill, they heal you. Yes, I've heard that too. So they they're not bad people at all, and it really irks me when I hear. Uh, the the horror stories that are being sold, yeah, and yeah. perpetrated in in motion pictures. Well, I also get a lot of guests too. Like I I, I have everybody on. I give everybody a voice. I try to be you know very open. Mm -hmm. um, but I do get a, a certain group of people that come from this other school of thought that say that um that they're they're evil entities trying to use humans human fear as some kind of battery or something like that. Yeah, But you know, that, those are interdimensionals. I mm -hmm. know this for a fact. They are interdimensionals and they're not extraterrestrials. They're negative interdimensionals that attach to people. They live off fear. They live, they make the person sick. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you might think of as demons. I wrote about that in my book, extraterrestrial contact what to do when you've been abducted and it has a, i wrote an entire chapter on that and how to how to get rid of it awesome yeah i actually am doing um there's a guy his name is dr motion mm -hmm. and he, he's written a ton about that and i'm actually going to be doing it going over like one of his papers with him about it mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting like, i i never so, so people probably just confusing the ETs with the interdimensional beings. Yes, yes, and and these interdimensionals are shapeshifters, so they can um, make themselves sometimes look like an ET, but they're not. There are always differences. Um, mm. They never look precisely like the ETs. Great. Well, thank you for clearing that one up for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Sometime I'll tell you um, why I know for certain. Oh, what? Does this mean there's going to be a part two to this? Sometime there could be. Oh, fantastic. I'd love to have you back on again. Well, thank you so much. Awesome. So, and uh, so before we wrap it up, you want to okay. give out your uh, a website again? Yes. My website is Kathleen, K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, dot com. You can purchase autographed copies of my books there and read where I will be speaking this year and also read that article I referred to. All right. And I'll definitely post a link to your website and a note to this episode so my listeners can check it out while they're listening. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was Good a time. great episode. And uh, just hang on one second. I just have to play the outro.
Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.